All right, so we had, um, I had to cut the lesson short because I was promising you that I'm going to try to finish on time, and my wife is the one that uh, helps me do that, and, and this is the signal that I've instructed her to give me. <laughs> so so I, the clock back there is a little bit, uh, a little bit slow, so I'm, I'm on, on task here, and I'm trying to keep track, and please just forgive me if I go a little bit over, but I am going to try to land the plane on time. All right, we're in chapter 3. For those of you who are with us for the first night tonight, just want to do a little bit of a review. The book of Ruth is a short book. It's a fun book. It's a sweet book. It's, uh, if you like romance stories, this is, a, this is an excellent one because you have all the unique dynamics that create dra- a drama exciting. You have um, you know, uh, a, a famine uh, that drives a family away from their hometown just trying to survive. And they go to a foreign land, Moab, and while they're there um, in the course of time, the patriarch dies, and so they have a funeral. And the mom of these, uh, these two boys that are left behind, uh, Naomi, in a very short order, she has two weddings that she's got a plan for because both of her sons uh, get married, and they married Moabitess. And we talked about early on how God's law, the Levitical law, and then repeated again in Deuteronomy, forbids a, a Jew to marry a, a Moabite. And we talked about the reason why, because they were the ones that cursed the Israelites and tried to get Balaam, the, one, the guy who talked to the donkey, or the donkey talked to him, to curse uh, the, the armies of Israel, and he couldn't do it because that's not how it worked. But later he kind of gave them a clue of how he could get God to curse him if even he couldn't do that. And that was by sending some pretty little Moabite maidens over to dance outside the camp of of the Israelite soldiers. And they came out and committed fornication, sexual immorality with these women. And God took out 24,000 of the tribe of Simeon. So when you get to the book of Numbers, you notice there's a huge drop-off in the numbers that are identified with the tribe of Simeon, and it's because of this event. So God just didn't want anything to do with them. In fact, he says sometime later that, that Moab is my wash bowl. And so if you can think about a place where you would go after tromping around in the mud to wash your feet, that's what God says about this group of people. And, and yet, last week I kind of finished with something that hopefully puzzled you a little bit. I said that our God is a promise-keeping God, And he gave the law to his people, and it's given to us in his word, and the law was never meant, and he understood this, to be fully kept. No one could ever keep the law fully. And so God made provision for that in sacrifices and then uh, in capital punishment. We're going to get into that a little bit more tonight uh, because I have a little rabbit trail we want to chase on that. But um, the book of Ruth was... was, um, identified in the time frame of the judges. And, um, and so uh, a lot of the books that I read, the, the um, commentary said that it was about the time of Gideon. So if you read uh, Judges chapter 6 through 8, you can read a lot about what was going on during that time. Um, the book of Judges is a real uh, dark, gloomy time in the land of Israel. But the book of Ruth is kind of like this little ray of sunshine because it reminds us that God is always at work. He's working behind the scenes. He's working in small things. And 
you know, Bethlehem was the hometown that they left to go to Moab. This is the town that they come back to. And we know that this is a special place because on your Christmas cards, you have pictures of sometimes shepherds in the field that the angels visited to tell the Messiah has been born today. And it's likely that the fields that these shepherds were watching the sheep in may have been or overlapped with the fields that once belonged to Boaz. So we have this, this link there. And, you know, we, we got to go to Israel back in 2020, right before COVID. And um, it was just an incredible thing to go to those fields and, and sing and think this is the place where David lived. This is the place where Ruth and Boaz raised Perez, who was a great-great-grandfather to David. This is the place where Jesus was born. They have the traditional place. I don't necessarily think it was there, but that's the place where they can get money for drawing tourists. But anyway, Ruth went through grief, uh, triple grief, her husband. And then after her sons marry, both of her sons die. And so she's left with nothing. She's got two, two daughters, daughters-in-law, and she decides, I'm going back. I've heard that God has visited his people. He's blessed them with food again. I'm going to go back. I don't have anything, but I'm going to go back. And her daughters-in-law say, we're going with you. And she said, nope, don't do that because there's no way that I can give you a husband and you're going to need a husband to cover over you. And I know that doesn't set well with with some of our ladies because uh, you don't need a man. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm going to say you do, and his name is Jesus. But, um, but in those days, uh, women struggled to survive in society if they didn't have a husband because the, it was a man's world, and they were the ones that did all the commerce, and they made all the decisions. And so Naomi's going back not knowing what she's going to have because before they left, she had to surrender, or her husband, Elimelech, had to surrender the land probably sold it to somebody or he may have lost it in, in getting indebted and just surrendered the land. And, but the beautiful thing about the land in Israel is, y'all know it all belongs to God, right? Amen. So God distributes it to whoever he wishes. And he had given it tribe by tribe, different areas. And this was the area of Judah. And the way that works there, uh, Cindy and I were blessed in that we were offered to buy some land, and we bought 25 acres out in Fayette County, four, 25 wooded acres, and it's beautiful and hilly, and I, and I call it Harpaso Hills, and, and I'm trying to convince my wife to call it that too. But, um, <laughs> but the, uh, the land was never sold just outright because it had to stay within the families of the tribe of that particular tribe. So that land that was designated and, and divvied out to the tribe of Judah had to stay within the tribe. And so the beautiful thing is, is at the 50-year Jubilee, um, they had to, so people who, who leased the land, which is ultimately what it was, a lease, not a purchase, they would have to surrender that land back to the family. And so they a lot of times would, would lease the land calculated on a certain number of years, and then that would be the, the value that they would get from that. But um, Naomi goes back. She has no resources. She has one daughter-in-law that she feels incredibly responsible for because she's clung to her and said, I'm going to go with you and, and made a death oath. I'm going to go where you go. Your people are going to be my people. Your land will be my land. And where I die, there I'll be buried. And your God will be my God. And 
God forbid if anything would separate us except death, which is essentially a death oath. She said, I'm going to go with you if it costs me my life. And Naomi said, okay. And they just started walking. 70-mile hike all the way back to, to Bethlehem. And when they get there, it creates an incredible uh, buzz because the population of Bethlehem is estimated about 4,000 people. And so, uh, you know, on a good day, in the old days, we'd have over 6,000 people here in worship. So it, it's not an incredible size, but the word was getting around, hey, Naomi's back. And she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. You call me Mara, which means bitter. And then I threw this in there. We love the name Mary, but Mary is a derivative of Mara. Um, but she brought this Moabite with her, and they have nothing. And Ruth apparently had a stronger back than Naomi. She's a little bit older now, so they figure out a way that they can survive. They're going to go in the fields and glean. And we talked about gleaning, and gleaning is something that, that was designed to protect and to cover the poor, the widows, those who had need. Uh, when a farmer would farm his, uh, harvest his field, he was only allowed to take one sweep with his harvesters. Anything that was left behind was accessible to and available to by law for the poor to pick up, for the widows, for the orphans. And so they would come in behind the, the reapers to get that. Um, and just so happened that they arrived in Bethlehem right at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is the first time of the year. We spent some time talking about the Jewish calendar, and we, I tried to describe the best I could as a Gentile the seven feasts that are around the calendar, and we have three in the spring and three in the fall, and one in the, in the kind of early summer called Shavuot, and that's what we call Pentecost, and it's the birth of the church, and then coincidentally, and I'm going to talk about that word in just a second, but coincidentally, um, the Jewish people would read the book of Ruth in their liturgy at the Feast of Shavuot, at the Feast of, of Pentecost. Coincidence? This is a word you need to remember. Coincidence is not a kosher word. Uh, coincidence, the Jewish rabbis say, is a hint that God is working behind the scenes. He's doing something. And, and so um, I think, uh, you know, we hear professional sports uh, coaches say, you know, uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that that's kind of like coincidence. God is preparing and He's creating the opportunity for all this to happen. So we looked at the calendar and then I want to just touch on this real quickly. In the New Testament, Jesus speaks to uh, some of the people that have challenged Him and He says to them, He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in these you'll find eternal life but these are what speak of me. And I have a, a parallel verse that um, I, uh, one of the commentaries I looked at uh, uncovered, Psalm 40 and verse 7, uh, and actually all Psalm 40 is just an incredible psalm, but verse 7 it says this, Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. And the scroll of the book is, is basically the, the sum total of the book. So the author here, I believe, was speaking prophetically about what Jesus said when he said, you search the scriptures and you think in these you're going to find eternal life. They're the ones that testify about me. And this statement in Psalms or the whole book is about me. The sum total of the scroll is written of me. And so I, I believe that we 
if we look hard enough, if we dig hard enough, we might find some cookies where we find Jesus on every page of the Scriptures. Somehow, some way, in some revelation. And I'm going to chase a couple rabbits today and show you where I think He shows up. All right. We talked about the Leverite marriage, and I threw this ugly old sandal up there because the end of the Leverite marriage was that someone in the family, uh, in the family tree, had to step up and take a widow as his bride, and usually it was the nearest kinsman, the brother of the deceased. And he had to, and, and this is foreign to us, it's crazy to us, but remember they lived in a culture where every marriage was an arranged marriage, and you just married who you were told to marry. And then it was about providing offspring that they would inherit the land, so the land stayed in the family. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem, she has no, she has no children, and she has no one to pass the inheritance on to, but she has this stake on this, this particular piece of property. And the Leverite marriage was something that she was aware of. Ruth was not aware of this. And we see this play out in chapters 3 and then uh, the, the setup and then the, the follow-through in chapter 4. So um, I took a deviation last week and we talked about Genesis 38. hope you went back and read that because that, that was a picture of where the Leverite marriage was was uh, employed, or not actually not employed, but it was impressed upon Judah's second son when his oldest son died, and his, his wife was left with no heir to inherit the land, and he tapped his next son to take her as a wife, and I shared with you the problem for that was he was the second born, and the child that he would, he would birth to his brother's wife would step in front of him in the inheritance line, and the firstborn always got a double portion. And he didn't like that. His brother was taken out. He was next in line to get a double portion. But if he provided seed for a baby and this child grew up, then that child would get a double portion and he'd be stuck in the back row again. So he didn't do that. And so God took him. And then we have this sordid tale. But I, I, just, I went there because I wanted you to see how that played out. And we're going to come back to that in week six for a different reason. Um, so chapter 3. We, last week we read verses 1 through 6. I'm just for, for expedience sake, I'm going to do that again. I'm looking at the clock and here we go. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, and we're talking about her as Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? And this is where we get the idea that for a young lady in, in ancient Israel, Having a husband, finding a husband was of utmost priority. They were told from a young age, you've got to be married or you're not going to be able to make it in this world. And I mentioned the, 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 the movie um, Fiddler on the Roof because there's a huge scene in there, actually several, where the matchmaker is trying to bring a, a candidate for these daughters and they're like, ugh, you know, it's old men that are like me, only had big gray beards and big bellies, and, and they're in love with somebody else, and their dad just struggles with that, with tradition and this new way of thinking of things. And, but this is the way it was, and people didn't think any different about it. But this, this mother-in-law is loving Ruth well. She's saying, I'm not going to be here for you forever. And somehow we've got to find someone who will take you as a bride and bring you into the, you know, to, to be able to survive. 
And up to this point in time, they're scrambling to survive. Ruth is going into the field. She's gleaning. She's gathering as much as she can. But Naomi found out at the end of chapter 2 that Ruth had coincidentally harvested or gleaned in Boaz's field. And Naomi was like, I know that name. <laughs> I know that name. In fact, he is a near kinsman to my former husband, Elimelech. And so Ruth is going to be clued in by her mother-in-law. I've got a plan. And so Naomi begins to function as a matchmaker, but she's got to educate Ruth on how to do this. And so she tells her in verse 3, uh, well, verse 2 first, it says, Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley in the threshing floor tonight. They're done with the harvest. Here's what comes next, the threshing floor. And I want to talk about that just for a second. A threshing floor is something that's real important in the harvest because what they would do is they would gather the grain and they would bring it to a place where the, the breeze would flow through. They would uh, grind the, the, the um, whatever the, they had harvested, the grain that they had harvested, and then they would toss it up in the air. Maybe you've seen this in movies where they do this, but they would toss it up in the air and the place that they picked would have a cross breeze and it would blow the chaff out, the little pieces of paper that were on the outside of the grain. And these people got really good at it. They could toss it in the air. The, the breeze would catch it and blow the chaff away. And that would be, be used, you know, maybe in stables or they would just burn it. And then the heavier part, the grain would fall to the ground. And then they could sack it up or, or you know, put it on a wagon or whatever and take it to market and sell it. Or they would, you know, use it for themselves or store it. But this was an important part of the harvest. They would go out in the fields in the hot of the day, pull it in, stack it all up, and then they would go through this, this threshing, this winnowing. And, and Naomi knows how this works. And so she's cluing Ruth in on this. And she says in verse 2, Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Now, if you hadn't been on a farm and you've never done that before, those are just words, blah, blah, blah to us. But... This is a very important thing because this is where the major drama takes place on this threshing floor. You know, David bought a threshing floor that later turned was the site of the temple. And so um, if you do a, just a little study on threshing floors, you'll kind of find that there are some really unique events and activities that took place on threshing floors, and it wasn't always winnowing. But Naomi gives... Uh, Ruth some instructions, and we went over this last week that these are good instructions for us as believers. Uh, chap uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, she says, wash yourself, therefore. And that is, that's a good thing for us to do, to confess our sins to, so that God can be free to be who He is, faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then she, sa he says, uh, she says to her daughter-in-law, anoint yourself. And this is where um, we uh, understand that she probably put on some kind of fragrant oil. It may have been frankincense. It may have been something else. But it was basically, you've been out in the fields working. It's time to get cleaned up. It's time to get on your best. And, and then he says, and put on your best clothes. Now, it's very possible that Ruth was still wearing her mourning clothes. May have been some kind of an outer garment that was dark that would just identify her to the community. Hey, hands off! This woman is is mourning, 
And that also may be part of the reason why Boaz didn't pursue her because clearly in chapter one he takes no or chapter two he takes notice of her, and uh, and then kind of shields her from some negative things that could happen to her just out in the field. But she's to take off her clothes, maybe her her garments of mourning, and now put on her best. And she may have only had one other outfit. I mean, remember they're coming back and they have nothing; they're destitute. And then she says, you can go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And she knows how this works. They go, they bring the harvest in the day. That night they, they winnow the, the grain. And then they have these big piles of grain. And to keep thieves from coming and stealing it and varmints from coming and eating it, which, you know, out in Fayette County we're finding that uh, I don't necessarily see the animals, but... I see the evidence that they've been there. Um, so they would, they would have these big piles of grain and they would, maybe like you've done at the beach, you know, you carve out a little place for your rear end and get comfortable in the sand. And they would do that in the grain and they would park themselves out of these big piles of grains to, you know, kind of like they would with the sheep. You know, hey, if somebody's coming or we've got, a, you know, we've got an animal coming up here, help me. And, but they would, they, they would sleep on, on the grain. And she knows this. And verse 4, it says, It shall be when he lies down that you notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. And Ruth responded to her and said, All that you say, I will do. So she's being obedient. She has no idea what is going on really, except I'm going to follow the instructions that you've given me. And this is kind of where we left off last week, but we're going to pick up now in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did all that her mother-in-law commanded her to do. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, and this, is, this was a common thing, they would do the, the harvest, they would do the winnowing, and then they would celebrate. You know? And really it was a time of, of thanks, thanking God. You know, Soon they would have... Um, the, uh, the, the Feast of first fruits, where they would bring some of the best grain and take it to the, the tabernacle at this time and, and offer it to God and thanking Him for, for His provision. But it says here that He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came secretly and uncovered His feet and laid down. So she laid down at His feet. Now the reason I'm saying that is because our culture puts a lot of inappropriate contact and conduct in this passage. But the Hebrew doesn't leave room for that. She put herself in a place of a servant. She didn't touch him. She didn't proposition him. She didn't snuggle up to him. She laid down at his feet. She uncovered his feet to get his attention. He probably covered his feet to stay warm, and she uncovered it, and, and it startled him. He woke up. His feet were cold. And it says it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and he bent forward and behold, the woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? Verse 9. And she said, I am Ruth, your maid, which is a, a humble statement. Now, when she first came, we're going to see this progression in Ruth's life. When she first came to Bethlehem, she was a Moabitess, off limits. And then she became a, a, um, a har uh, not even a harvester, but a, a maidservant in the field behind 
uh, Boaz's maidservant. He kind of elevated her up to be able to harvest along with them. But now he's saying you're made, which is really more like I'm going to be ministering to you directly, not out here in the field. I'm, gonna, I'm making myself available to you. She humbled herself to do that. But then she says this, So spread your covering over your maid for your close relative. Now, this idea of spread your covering over, this is where people get off because it sounds like, you know, invite me up there, big boy. It's not that at all. Um, this idea of spread your covering, spread your skirt. This is where I'm going to chase my first rabbit for the night. Um, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says this. Isaiah 6.1, he says, uh, On the, the year of Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And... A little word study on that. Um, you know, we think of the train of the robe. Those of you girls who dreamed of your wedding and, and have seen the sound of music and saw Sister Maria go down the, you know, the basilica aisle with that long train. That's what comes to mind. But actually the word here for train can be translated hem. H-E-M, hem. And I want you to think about the hem of a garment and actually, that, that's kind of a, it's an important thing, but it's a, really a secondary thing. People don't come up and say, oh, you look beautiful tonight. I really like your hem. <laughs> they say, I love your blouse. I love the flowers. I love the, those colors look great on you. And that's a beautiful hem you have. <laughs> they don't say that. But what I want you to see is with Isaiah, what he saw was God's hem was so big and so magnificent, it filled the temple. And this idea of hems is an important thing that we don't really get. We kind of maybe see it in a different way in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines. People get up in rank and they get, they get markings on their shoulders or on, their, you know, on the side of their arms or on their shoulders, sometimes on the sleeves, sometimes it's here on the chest that indicates the rank that they are. And this is how it operated. And I, I've, I've been to Guatemala. I've been to Nicaragua. And, and down there, the same thing goes on. The women have a particular pattern or that they will stitch into the clothing that identifies them with that particular tribe. And then in the time of, of, of this, kings would use it kind of as a stamp on clay tablets. They would, they would take their, their little shawl that had the the emblem stitched into it, and they would press it in, and it was kind of like a, a signet ring would be used. Um, you know, if you watch some of the movies that are done about Christ, uh, and you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they all had shawls, and down, the, down on the, the edge, the hem of their shawl, they would have little markings, and usually that represented some kind of rank, and, and it it had to do with their, their role that they played and the responsibilities that they had. Well, the people who think that this is all just a sexual invitation are selling it far short. This is, this is our first indication that it's not, it's not unbiblical for a bride to propose to her future husband. <laughs> Ruth was proposing to Boaz. And we see it in the next sentence. He says, she says, uh, for you are a close relative. So she's using language that he understands. Naomi understood it. Ruth was going along with it. But Boaz understands it. 
And listen to his response. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for if you've shown your last kindness is better than the first. And remember, he acknowledged that she was a, a noble woman for coming with her, her mother-in-law and caring for her in the way that she was. She was out in the fields working hard to get food for them to survive the next day. And he's saying, you know what, this, what you're doing right now is even kinder than what you're doing for your mother-in-law. And he indicates why. He says, because you've not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. I know you're not a gold digger. I know you're not looking for somebody that's, that's going to be compatible with you. You're trying to take, your mother is trying, your mother-in-law is trying to take care of you by finding you rest, by finding you a covering, and you're taking care of your mother-in-law because you're going to see how this kinsman redeemer thing works. And so he gives her, now he gives her instruction, verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you whatever you ask. Wow. And she's asked him to marry her. And he says, all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. So she had been there long enough for her reputation to go around, and it was stellar. People looked at her. They knew her. They knew she was a Moabitess, but they also knew she was a woman of principle and a woman of purity. Now, here's the twist in the plot. Verse 12, now, it is true that I'm a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. And... That's how this thing, the, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, worked, is the closest relative had the first right of refusal. And so a kinsman redeemer nearer than I meant that there was somebody in line ahead of me. And this person would have the, the opportunity to do what you're talking about, redeem you as a bride and also redeem the land. And under Mosaic Law, the duty fell upon the closest male relative to fulfill that role unless he waived his right of priority. And we talked about last week that that ugly, that ugly slipper or uh, sandal was a, a surrender of that meant I refuse to follow up with what my obligation is. And then it would go to the next person in line. Well, um, we know of... Uh, uh, at least from, from what uh, the books tell me, uh, kind of the procedure that was involved in this. And Boaz knew he couldn't, no matter if he loved her or not, no matter if he wanted to marry her or not, he had to do this properly. He had to follow the rules and, and go find this nearer kinsman. And he's aware of who it is. And so he gives her some instructions. He's saying, um, remain this night when morning comes. If he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you. As the Lord lives, lie down into the morning. And so he's, he's swearing by the Lord, I am going to do this because our God lives. And so I'm going to follow through with this. I'm gonna, either going to put the pressure on him to marry you, to take you as a bride and redeem this land. Because remember, it's not just only about the marriage. Behind the scenes, there's some land at stake, and this is very important. And if he doesn't, risk, if he doesn't redeem you, as the Lord lives then I will. So one way or another, it's going to happen. And so verse 14, So she lay at his feet until morning and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So he's trying to preserve her reputation. 
So if anybody did see her on the way out, it wasn't the walk of shame. It was the walk of glory because she had been faithful to the Lord all night and been pure. Verse 15, and again he said, now he's speaking to Ruth, Give me the cloak that is on, on you and hold it. So she held it. And he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her, and then she went in the city. Now this is kind of was a fun little side thing for me because I, I looked at a couple different commentaries and they don't agree with what this measure was. They know it was six measures. They all agree with that because that's what the text says. But they didn't know how much it was. And those of you ladies who like to bake know it's kind of important. Is it a, is it a cup or is it a half cup or is it a two cups? Because it makes a difference. I know because I've made a cake with baking soda before when it called for... Okay. I, I'm glad to throw myself out there to laugh at. <laughs> um, and it tasted horrible. Okay. All right. So these six measures of barley are actually a message to the mother-in-law. So he gives her six measures of barley and laid it on her, and then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she, she said, Naomi said, How did it go, my daughter? And she said, All that the man had told and done for her. All the man had done for her. So he, she gives her a blow-by-blow. Blow. And, and I think, isn't that how it works for you ladies? You know, did you have fun? Was he, did you like him? What would you do? What else did you do? And what did you do after that? Does his breath stink? You can fix that. <laughs> All right, so she said, this is Naomi now, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not let your mother-in-law go empty-handed. So I'm sorry, this is uh, Ruth speaking. So she's telling Naomi a message from Boaz, take these to your mother-in-law. Now, this is an interesting thing because he said, well, actually, let's finish the chapter. Verse 18, then she said, wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. So it's the morning, and we've had a proposal, and something's going to happen today. And Naomi decodes the message, and the message is he's not going to rest until this is settled, until this matter is settled. And, you know, when we take a, a, a look at the days of creation, how many days did it take God to create the earth? Six. And on what day did He do what? On the seventh day, He rested. And so this was a coded message to the mother-in-law, I'm going to follow through with this, I'm going to get it done today, and you can rest. And... Ruth will have her rest. She'll be covered. And so we finish the chapter with uncertainty. We finish the chapter with the next step. And, you know, if you were uh, watching a movie, there'd be the close of the scene and an open of another scene. And we're going to get to that next week. But I want to, I want, and I've got plenty of time, yay. All right, I want to go and I want to talk about this idea of the kinsman redeemer again. This idea of a, a kinsman that's nearer than I um, just indicates that the next one in line had the obligation by law to step up and provide that offspring in the name of the deceased husband, 
And that's what the Leverite marriage is all about. But it, in, it included this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And I've given you the Hebrew word for that. It's the word goel, G-O-E-L. And this is one aspect of the goel. The goel was the kinsman redeemer, and he would be the one who stepped in and redeemed the land and, the, and provided an offspring to inherit that land, and that's the one part. But um, there's another part of the goel, and this part is called the blood avenger. So this is the backside of the same coin. So you'll, you know, if you read in Hebrew, you find the word goel, you're going to know it means one of these two things. The context determines that. But the goel, the role of the goel as the kinsman redeemer, we, we see played out in Ruth. But in other places, we see the goel played out because I think I mentioned last week that in, in, in ancient Israel, there was no police force and there were no jails. There were no prisons. They had two ways of dealing with bad behavior. One was sacrifices, and they would offer sacrifices on a regular basis for their sin. And then the other was capital punishment, stoning. And the second, the backside of the kinsman redeemer, the, the goel, the, the blood avenger, would be when, uh, and I'm just going to give an example, if, some, if two men were out in the field and maybe they were threshing wheat and the blade flew off of the man's thing and killed another man. Well, that would enact and trigger the Goel response and the family uh, would designate a Goel to avenge that blood. That would be the person who would go hunt this person down and by law he was required to kill him. You all heard of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay? And so blood was shed, innocent blood was shed, they weren't in a fight, and now blood had to be shed to accomplish that. And remember I told you last week that for us, prophecy is a prediction and then a fulfillment for the Jewish mind, for the Eastern mind, prophecy is a pattern that's repeated over and over and over again. And so we have this, this backside of the Goel, and it's pretty cold-blooded. I mean, our laws don't allow for that. And so we're, you know, we talk about that as taking matters into your own hand, taking the law into your own hands. That's not the way they looked at it. They looked at it as, you shed blood, your, your blood will be shed. And so the Goel would go hunt this person down. Now, this person had an option because they had judges and they had magistrates in each of the cities, and there were multiple cities all over. Well, there were 48 cities that were designated for the Levites. They didn't get land, per se. They had cities that they were responsible for, and six of them were designated as what, what were called uh, cities of refuge. And we have, in our culture, a term that's kind of like that, sanctuary cities. And these cities of refuge, basically what would happen is, is this person was accused of murder, they could run to one of these cities and all of them were, with, were spread out all over Israel so they could get there within a day's journey or less. And they would go to the city's, city officials who sat in the gate and they would explain, I'm running from the Goel because this happened in the field. I was threshing and the, my blade flew off and it killed him and the, the Goel has been uh, appointed and he's chasing after me. And that particular city, that city of refuge would take them in and then the city officials would send somebody out to go investigate and they would find out what happened 
And if this was first-degree murder, if it was premeditated, and this person was lying, they'd grab him, drag him out, go find the goel, and it'd be a big stoning party. <laughs> uh, only one person got stoned, but it was, it was permanent. And, um, and if he was innocent, he was allowed to stay and function in that city underneath the leaders of that city, the Levites, and then um, if, if he left out of the city, then he was fair game. The goel could take him. So sometimes a goel would be appointed, and he didn't want that. And so if he was found innocent, then he was, he was kind of off the hook. He didn't have to follow through with it. Sometimes it was, it was vengeance. I wanna, I'm going to hunt this guy, and I'm going to be waiting at the city gate. If he walks out, I'm going to take his life. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take his life because he killed my brother. And so the blood avenger was uh, someone that was uh, identified as a goel as well. It was kind of a, a, a sour side of it or an unpleasant side of it. But, uh, and I think I remembered, uh, well, I, I know I told you about no police state. Um, well, this, this was all in place. And, um, and the interesting thing, as I, and I'm going to go back to my statement, that Prophecy is pattern, and so we know that if God's view of that is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put something up, and I want people to see it, and I want them to remember that, and then we're going to repeat it over and over and over again. That's why I spent so much time on the, on the festivals the first couple weeks, because on the calendar we have seasons, and on the calendar we have months, and on the calendar we have weeks and days, and, and annually we have birthdays and we celebrate those every year and then we have anniversaries and then we have events that we celebrate and usually they land on certain seasons of the calendar and then we have other things like funerals where we remember a date that you know my 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 mother died on this date and and you know we might be sad or we might you know if we're doing well we might remember positive things and great interactions that we had with our mother who died on this day and and then there are other things. There are what are called types. And I, I think I told you to write down Hosea 12.10 and look at this a little bit later because God is speaking and He tells them, I spoke in, in, in different uh, types and similitudes and, and different things to reveal His plan. And obviously this kinsman redeemer is important. And it's important in that it, it redeemed Naomi, it redeemed the land, it redeemed the land to Elimelech's offspring, which later was a, a little boy named, um, I just went blank for a second, Obed, yes, yeah, Obed. <laughs> and, um, and, and then this is why we celebrate uh, Christmas because of Ruth's uh, passing on this land of Bethlehem and then David being born there and then later Jesus. Um, but this other side, we don't really talk about that much. And we talk about the particulars of the Goel as it pertains to Ruth and all that, but this other side, we don't talk about that much. But I want you to see something. You know, in the New Testament, uh, um, the uh, cities of refuge are recognized by the Jewish people in the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 6, verses 16 through 20, that all these things are actually a type of Christ. And remember we covered that Jesus said, you search the scriptures, you think in these you're going to find eternal life, but these speak of me. And then in Psalm 40, that 
the sum total of, of the scroll. Everything that's written is written about me. And so we find that the, the goel is a type of Christ. It's a picture of Jesus in that he redeems a bride and claims his and stakes his claim on the land in in uh, and remember Ruth is a Gentile so Boaz reaches uh, or he redeems a Gentile bride to himself and Jesus has a bride too called the church and I don't know if you all heard about this but there's going to be this great wedding feast in heaven and Jesus is going to be the groom, and I hate to disappoint you guys. You got to be the groom in your wedding, but you're going to be a bride at this one, <laughs> or you'll be part of the bride. And um, and so, the kinsman redeemer, uh, in terms of the leverat marriage, Jesus steps up as a near kinsman. You know, the the, the rules for a near kinsman is he had to be uh, in the family, and we know that Jesus is is uh, God in the flesh. 100% man, and it had to be a man. He had to be able to do it. And I, I think I told you to write down Revelation 5 because in week 6 we're going to come back to that. But that's the question that John raises. Who is able to, to loose the scrolls? And that scrolls is going to come back into play because it's connected to the land. And, and then we know that uh, he had to be willing, and we have uncovered one in, in Genesis 38 of a, of a kinsman redeemer, the near kinsman who was not willing. And then we're going to find out next week in chapter 4 that we got another one who wasn't willing. And then he had to assume all the obligations that went along with that, including getting out the title deed for the land, finding out what was owed on the balance of it, and paying that off. And then everything that goes along with it, and that's what ends up being problematic in chapter 4. So the kinsman redeemer is, um, is on that side. The blood avenger, I believe, also is a type of Christ because we're told that Jesus is our refuge. And so in a roundabout way, Jesus is our refuge, and we run to him. This is a verse that Cindy and I have been talking about a lot, Proverbs uh, 1810, which says, the name of the Lord is a mighty tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. And I love that, that we run to our tower of refuge, and we're safe there. And so Jesus is our, our refuge. He's our, he's our city of refuge. And we run to Him, and we're safe. But here's the challenge that we have. You know, once we get there, there was an investigation that was done. And if it was found out that the person was guilty of first-degree murder or premeditated murder, then he was going to be stoned. And so the question is, is Jesus, is his murder on the cross, is it premeditated or is it involuntary? Is it, is it just manslaughter? And the answer from heaven is it was premeditated. It was an agreement between the Father and the Son before the foundation of the world. And it's, in a sense, we could say it was premeditated because the Roman soldiers didn't accidentally pound those nails and the Jewish leaders didn't accidentally try him and Pilate, representing us, didn't 
find him innocent. And he, he may have done some outward thing. I'm going to wash my hands of this. God still holds him accountable. And you read about that in the book of Acts. So it was murder. So we're guilty. We've run to our city of refuge and we're guilty. But you know, God has a way of getting around things. It's called grace. <laughs> and on the cross, Jesus made six statements. And I know one, you know, one of them is, I'm thirsty. And one of them is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everybody knows the last one. It is finished. But there's a statement that he makes that's very important in this type. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in that statement, Jesus moved us from first-degree murderers into involuntary manslaughter. So Jesus is our city of refuge. He's our, we run in Him, we're safe. He also pronounces us innocent because of His sacrifice. He takes on the punishment for us. And then um, He... Uh, releases us. Now, there's one little thing that I didn't tell you. I talked about the year of Jubilee, and that was kind of like this 50-year thing, the clock's ticking, and 50th year we're going to celebrate, and all the parts go back into the, into the box, and everybody gets their land back. Well, that was tough for the person who had been given refuge in the city of refuge by the church by the, the city leaders because they still couldn't leave. Even if they were found innocent, they couldn't leave because they would risk their life except for one little thing. And that is, if the high priest in Jerusalem died. And I don't know about y'all, but that's the craziest thing. That'd be like saying, well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my house if you know, the, the mayor of Miami uh, passes this law. You know, it's just very obscure. But this is where the types come into play, because who is our high priest? Jesus. And oh, by the way, did he die? He died. And he released us from that city of refuge by his death, by giving us new life, by walking out of the tomb and leaving it empty. So Jesus is our high priest who died and who rose again, who gives us freedom from our our trap you know, we have some freedom in this, but now we have freedom away from our guilt and our shame to live victoriously outside of that because of, of Him. So, I don't know about y'all, but I love that cookie. <laughs> All right. Um, we talked about Naomi decoding the message. So, I did pretty good on time. I can maybe field some questions. Next time we're together... We're going to look at the final scene, and then I want to leave the last week to deal with some, some big cookies, some things that are in the text, in between the lines, and I'm trying to not get too excited and share too much because I want, I want you to come back for that. All right, so um, if I've encouraged you to read the, the, the book every week. I, I really would like you to reread chapters 3 and 4. As you do it, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. I want you to go away from this, and you're going to have an assignment when you're done with, with me. I, I want you to share this with other people. 
I want you to get excited about it. I want you to share it with other people. I want you to get them excited about it. A verse that my wife and I are talking a lot about is Malachi 3.16. I think I mentioned it last week, so I mentioned it for those who weren't here. Malachi 3.16, and I say it that way because John 3.16, you'll remember it. Malachi 3.16 says that um, uh, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And that's kind of what we do in fellowship. We, we fear the Lord, we come together, we talk, and the Lord took notice of it. You know, I don't know about y'all, but if God takes notice of something, I want to find out what that is, and I want to do that. <laughs> he took notice of it, and a scroll was written before him to those who fear the Lord, to those who esteem his name. So as we do this, somewhere a book, a scroll is being written in the presence of God when we lift up His name, when we sing together. This is part of the reason why corporate worship, I believe, is so important because God takes notice of that when we're in agreement about praising and worshiping Him. And then, oh, by the way, you get to Revelation chapter 20 and there's a great white throne and Him who sat on it, earth and heaven fled because there was no place found for them. And then the dead, great and small, were brought before the throne and books were opened. And another book, which is the Lamb's Book of Life. And everyone was judged by the things that were written in the book according to their deeds. And I believe that there's going to be some rewards there and there's going to be some disappointment there because all of us, I have to confess, I've missed opportunities that I know the Spirit prompted me in and I just, not this time. So we have an opportunity. And these types of meetings and interacting with one another, I hope you... Go away and say, can you believe that joker? I can't believe we got that knucklehead on our staff. Um, I want you to talk about this. I want you to talk about it with other people. The book of Ruth is one that, you know, it's just amazing how it's connected. In in fact, let me finish with this final statement. The book of Ruth at one point in time was clumped together with the book of Judges in, in the Hebrews writings. But then later it got bumped out of that and it was with the books of prophecy. And if we understand some of these things, that prophecy is patterned, and we see these little clues here, and then we have the full picture in, in our Savior, Jesus Christ, then it's no wonder that somehow, some way, the Holy Spirit prompted someone to attach the book of Ruth to, with all the books of prophecy. So we are the beneficiaries because we have the whole story. But there's cookies out there, and uh, we can go find them. I don't know about y'all. I like cookies. All right. Um, Let's stand, and we'll close in prayer, and I'll release you. And I made up for last week in the time. All right. We get to get up slow, and I do these days too, and it gets blood to my knees. And then I, when we stand and pray, then it gives us a minute to get our legs underneath us. And I'm stalling, so you can do that. So, okay, let me pray for us. Father, again, thank you. Thank you for this precious book. Thank you for including it. Thank you for giving us men and women who've gone before us, who've taken the time to study all these things. And thank you for, for exciting me about it and then give me the opportunity to share what you've shown me. Lord, bless my brothers and my sisters. 
change us because of this. I pray that we would walk in awe of your word and all that you've done to make it possible for us to read it. And then, Lord, fill us with wonder. Help us to, to know that devotional reading is wonderful, but it's not enough. And casual reading of the Bible is, is almost an affront to you. Will you teach us to hunger for deeper things? Open our eyes that we might see. And just again, thank you for my brothers and sisters who are curious and hanging in here with me on it and putting it up with me. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for answering the prayers that we prayed at the beginning. We bless the name of Jesus and we worship you. And we close praying in that name. Amen.